Welcome to the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast, where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history using research and trivia to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. Congratulations. You've reached the world's finest podcast for music whose lips don't move when it speaks. We're going to start this episode off with some trivia. You know more than I know. I'm going to go first today on trivia, and it's going to be pretty straightforward. I've got six clips. I would like for you to tell me the artist name, the song title, and the theme. Okay. All right, here we go. Track one. If they push that button, it's gonna blast you so high. Track two. There's always some turtle snapping. Track three. Sleeping on futons and cots, the king size, green machines, the green fives, the scene pies, let the thing between my eyes and the lies, life ills. Then I put it down tight grill. I'm tight grill with the phony. Track four. Now see alone in us. Alone. In us, our own Track five. What do you think? Yeah, I know a few of them. I know half of them. I don't okay. know. Maybe, maybe, maybe when we play it again at the end, I'll, some will come to me. We will be playing that one more time at the end of the show. Does it have to do with the theme of the show today? Can you tell me that? It's more song related than anything else. Okay. We'll, we'll swing back around. All right. Time for my trivia. And this trivia is... Band mascots. I'm going to read you the name of a mascot, and you just have to tell me uh, the name of the band. And it's a mascot in that it's in their logo or in their artwork or on their album covers. or you, You'll get the idea. All right. The Fiend Skull. Iron Maiden? Nope. I'm not going to know any of these. Oh, wait, I know the name of the Iron Maiden one. Um... Also called the Crimson Ghost. I don't know. What is it? The Fiend Skull is the Misfits. Oh, okay. okay. Nice, easy one. Here we go. Swing and a miss. <laughs> this is the most famous band mascot ever. All right, here we go. Eddie. Iron Maiden. Very good. Very good. Milo. Descendants. Great. All right, here's one. The Bear. I don't know. 
You've seen this probably on a sticker on the back of a Kia Sorento or something. Dave Matthews Band? Radiohead, Radiohead. Oh, Radiohead. I didn't even know they had a logo. You know that bear with the creepy teeth and stuff? Yeah, I'm, sh- I'm sure you've seen oh, it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. okay, okay. Got it. Here's one. Easy one for you. Boogie Boy. Or Bougie Boy. All right. Bougie Boy. Devo? Oh, no, it's Devo. That is correct. All right. Algie the Pig. I don't know. Band has a famous pig. Their first lead singer is also kind of their mascot, too. Pink Floyd. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that pig. Now I know what you're talking about. <laughs> All right. <laughs> the Pinhead, or Pinhead. Ramones? Very good. Vic Rattlehead. I don't know. That is Megadeth. Okay. All right, here's an easy one for you. The Dancing Bears. Grateful Dead? Yep. You got it. Henry the Fallen Angel. It sounds like sounds like one I might know. Yeah, it's a pretty big band. I don't know. Okay. Christian Death? I don't know. No, it's Black Sabbath. Oh, okay. They have a mascot. What's their mascot look like? Like a fallen angel. Okay. Named Henry. It was for the later years, mostly. Dio stuff? Yeah, Dio stuff. Okay. (laughs) Walt Jabsko. Walt Jabsko. I'll say that he liked to dress in black and white. Black and white. Um, Both tones. It's making it more confusing for me. Two tones of colors. Some kind of ska band. The specials? The specials. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for all those hints. <laughs> I didn't know they had... I mean, I know Twin Tone has a logo. I didn't know the specials had a logo. Yeah, it's a, they're very similar. It's just the dancing guy. We're going to get back to another one of those in a minute. All right. Okay. Snaggletooth. Super famous one. That does that's not going to help me. I don't know what is it. That's Motorhead. Oh, okay. Here's one you should get. Boognish. Ween. That's Ween. Very good. All right. This is one I don't think you'll get. Crystar. There's two two bands, and I will say these bands are related to another band that we've already talked about, or their descendants. Of another band that we've talked about. Sawin or Danzig. Most of these are skulls, really. All right, Starman. David Bowie. No, it's Rush. Oh, well, there's no way I would know anything about that. Yes, yes. Even if I did, I wouldn't admit it. I'm saving my one that you... I'm saving my one that you possibly could know, but would never admit you'd know for last. We're almost there. Okay. I have a special one for that. Skanking Man. This one... Is it Madness? 
No, it's the or... circle. Oh. Circle jerk. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> is it really? Yes. I wouldn't have gotten that without the word circle, yes. but thank you. <laughs> it's some sort of jerk. It's a shape of a jerk. All right, and here's the last one. The fire dancer. You actually guessed it earlier, too. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Dave Matthews Band? Dave Matthews Band. Boom! DMB. I can't believe that out of all those, the ones you got was Dave Matthews Band. Well, I've been jamming a lot lately. (laughs) Does Guar have a mascot? I think Guar is a band of mascots. That's my confusion. Is their mascot just some normal kid? (laughs) Johnny Guar. All right, are you ready to move on to Turntable Talk? Let's do it. Everybody's talking at me. I don't hear a word they're saying. Only the echoes of my mind. There was never any doubt that Candy was always second fiddle to Charlie. Their dad made it abundantly clear every day. Charlie's room was significantly bigger than her small nook. Although by any definition Candy was a beautiful child, her father would belittle her looks while praising Charlie's sharp, sparkly eyes, chiseled facial features, and dapper style. Charlie was the old man's constant companion while he barely talked to his own daughter. The one time she mustered up the courage to tell him, I love you, he gave her a dismissive pat on the head. Meanwhile, Charlie was treated with an unnatural reverence, like the child he never had. Though their dad was quite famous in his own right, and their mom a stunning model, and the Chesterfield girl, Charlie enjoyed and thrived on constant recognition from his adoring public. He received mountains of fan mail and invitations to parties and requests to do guest spots on television shows. His friends were bountiful, glamorous, and powerful. Frank Sinatra, Henry Fonda, the Andrews sisters, Rosemary Clooney, Roy Rogers, Carol Channing, Groucho Marx, Dinah Shore, and Liberace. A true Beverly Hills star. One morning, Candy snuck into Charlie's room, which had been strictly forbidden. She wanted to steal a glance at his immense wardrobe, which he regularly flaunted around the house. As she sheepishly opened the closet door, she came to a startling realization. Dangling from the ceiling were five exact copies of her brother. At that moment, the young Candace Bergen realized her brother, Charlie McCarthy, was not her real brother and, more startlingly, wasn't even alive. Ventilaquist Edgar Bergen was, for some time, one of the most triumphant comedians in Hollywood. Bergen started as a vaudeville performer, but... Ironically, it wasn't until he started doing radio shows that his act took off. His partner, Charlie McCarthy, was a wise-cracking, womanizing wooden boy child in a top hat, tux, and monocle that was carved by puppet maker Theodore Mack to resemble a rapscallion Irish paperboy that Bergen knew as a child. McCarthy could flirt, mock, and joke with reckless abandon in a way that no human could have got away with in the 30s or 40s or even today. He'd joke about giving Mae West splinters from late-night encounters and make fun of W.C. Fields' alcoholism 
while the hapless comedian threatened him with woodpeckers. And he would call out commies in the audience so that they could be blackballed. That's where the term McCarthyism comes from. Fact. While Orson Welles was delivering the infamous panic-inducing War of the Worlds address, most of America was instead listening in to hear Charlie's one-liners and double entendres. Charlie, where did you leave those keys? Where did you leave those keys? I'm telling you. He left them on my dresser, so what? Charlie, why don't you walk out on Brigham? What's holding you? Well, he is. <laughs> you better tell him, May. Well, if you want to know, he did come up to see me. Oh, he did? And what was he doing up there? Well, Charlie came up and I showed him my etchings. <laughs> and he showed me his stamp collection. There you have it, Brigham. There you have it. Yes, so that's all there was to us, just etchings and a stamp collection. <laughs> He's so naive. Bergen and Charlie would go on to have the radio shows and star on television, film, game shows, and in comic books. As is the case with most ventriloquists, the public fixation on Charlie McCarthy eclipsed the interest in Bergen as the straight man. Partially, this may explain why Bergen was so devoted to his lifelong dummy companion at home. In the early part of her life, Candace Bergen had no idea her brother was made of wood. Charlie was a constant presence. There are pictures of him staring at her in her crib with his lifeless, soulless gaze. She would be forced to wear matching pajamas with her ligneous brother. At the table, her father wouldn't speak to her. Rather, it was Charlie who instructed her to drink her milk and be a good little girl. Or on other occasions, Edgar would prop them both up on his knees and gently squeeze the back of Candace's neck as a cue to open and shut her mouth so he could ventriloquize her and hold conversations between her and his surrogate son. He would create whole dialogues between his flesh-and-blood daughter and his highly favored piece of wood. This nightmare family dynamic continued throughout Candace Bergen's whole life as she sought attention and affection from her dad, but found none. When he died, he didn't leave a dime to his daughter. Charlie, however, got $10,000. In every dream home, a heartache. In the course of their career, Charlie McCarthy and his handler father, Edgar Bergen, made dozens of records, reproductions of their radio shows, comedy records, and instructional discs. These albums were on the cusp of one of the oddest cultural and record trends to enthrall America the ventriloquist fad. Suddenly, dummies, puppets, and dolls adorned any number of cheaply produced records, usually children's Christian records. Bizarre on many levels, but mostly because the medium of a pre-recorded album eliminates the most wondrous and skillful part of ventriloquist acts and puppet shows, that the performer makes the doll come alive before your eyes. Putting this on vinyls, like listening to a recording of a car race. The sounds vroom, vroom, without experiencing any of the speed and spectacle that make it worth watching in the first place, which it isn't anyway. Still, the records were made in mass and permeated popular culture and planted the seed of millions of night terrors in confused children. In this episode, we're going to stare into the cold dead eyes of the dummies. We're going to explore why and how adults mimicking mannerisms into lifeless masses became the preeminent evangelical apparatus, and how things went so far off the rails. So, 
dim the lights and focus the spotlight, put on your ducktail tuxedo, tip your top hat jauntily askew, straighten your bow tie, stick your hand up the bottom of your favorite inanimate object, and throw your voice as far as it can go. Join us as we walk through the uncanny valley of the dolls. Just don't let us see your lips move. Today, the wacky world of puppet records. You dummies. Hello, everyone. My name is Marcy. What is your name? Oh, you can say it louder. Good. How would you like to sing with me? There will be some old songs you already know and new songs to learn. Doesn't that sound like fun? Puppetry is an ancient form of storytelling that goes back 4,000 years. The ability to convey emotion and morals through the manipulation of objects is a critical method of transmitting ideas, needs, and values of a society. Puppets have played different roles throughout their existence. Toy to totem, mythology to merrymaking, comedy to consoling, education to entertainment, awkward to terrifying. The proximity to human form provides some believability and context for what is being said, but its fantastical existence makes the interaction intriguing enough for an audience to pay attention. Traditionally, puppets were used primarily for simple dramatic purposes. The modern era of puppetry really begins in the mid-19th century with the rise and prominence of two styles of puppetry. First, there were the trick puppets, who amazed with their specific ability to perform tasks like juggling, playing a violin, beating a wife, or dancing. Additionally, there were transformation puppets that entertained through changing their own form in some manner or another. The complexity of the performance of the puppeteer was the primary draw rather than the stories they were telling. Puppet shows mostly aimed at adults would be found all over America and Europe in dime museums, fairs, circuses, and vaudeville shows. With the influx of immigrants during the era, any number of styles of puppetry, from glove puppets, shadow puppets, water puppets, marionettes, and automatons, became popular. But it was the puppets who mimicked human actions, like drinking, smoking, dancing, and eating, that the crowds loved the best. Eventually, it would be unusual to find a festive public gathering that didn't offer a performance of the most well-known characters, Punch and Judy, the Disintegrating Skeletons, or the Grand Turk. In the early 20th century, a puppet fervor slowly crept across America, like rust on a Chevy Nova. As traveling shows made puppeteers into full-fledged celebrities, particularly the self-proclaimed America's puppet master, Tony Sarg who was instrumental in creating visually appealing versions of classic children's tales and bringing to life puppets in live action and animated films. Concurrently, ventriloquism acts were breaking from the music halls and vaudeville shows to find superstardom, led by duos of Arthur Prince and Sailor Jimmy, the great Lester and Frank Byron Jr., and of course, Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy. America got wood for talking wood. The rise of radio, television, and film provided even broader platforms for puppeteers and ventriloquists to spread their infectious amusements. In a world before special effects, making inanimate objects come alive felt magical and more real than still nation animation. It was children's television that really embraced puppets as Howdy Doody and 
Burr, Tilstrom's, Kukla, Fran, and Ollie were beamed directly into the impressionable minds of baby boomers. Lamb Chop loving Sherry Lewis, sweater-clad Fred Rogers, and googly-eyed Jim Henson all followed suit shortly after, making themselves and their creations into international superstars. And it wasn't just for entertainment. Here's a British government video that features a ventriloquist talking with his pal about how to prepare the household for late-night bombing runs. I suppose that might cut some of the tension of being blitzed, right? Even a dummy like you knows there are certain precautions against incendiaries that everybody should take before going to bed at night. And do you remember seeing anything else in the hall? No, sir, my head feels like a glock of wood this morning. Well, then we'll try and look something into it. Do you remember seeing an old pair of gloves? An old pair of gloves, sir, yes. To save my hands against any incendiaries. And do you remember seeing an old chopper? An old chopper, sir, yes, to cut down any curtains that might be on fire. And do you remember seeing an old rake? An old rake, sir, yes. No, I thought you were in bed. I said an old rake. To rake anything that may be burning to a place of safety. At about the same nuclear age time frame, you couldn't throw a stone without hitting a socially awkward and probably sexually frustrated kid unsuccessfully practicing throwing his voice with a shiny new Emmett Kelly or Mortimer Snurd dummy emulating their heroes like Jimmy Nelson, Bill Baird, and Paul Winchell. They would spend hours listening to instructional records on letter substitutions and tongue positioning. The craze permeated far and wide as even Miss America contestants chose ventriloquism and tongue positioning for the talent portion of the show. We even got so lazy that we decided to let robots run our puppets as animatronics started popping up all over the place like Disneyland, Showbiz Pizza, and Chuck E. Cheese. Sometimes the fur-covered android music was pretty good, too, like this amazing Devo-inspired track about suffering through toxic friendships by... Charles Entertainment himself. The artwork got a bit more subversive and occasionally more adult in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, with more stylized approaches to shows like Super Marionation, featuring ass-kicking marionettes the Thunderbirds, and H&R Puffin Stuff, featuring grass-kicking lifesavers. Senor Wences was alright, with plenty of very nice hand puppet gimmicks on Ed Sullivan. Willie Tyler and his dummy Lester would break big on Rowan and Martin's laughing and he would eventually sign and tour with Motown. The duo even recorded a single called Cannibal for the label that, for some reason, was never released. Unless you've been around, I'm telling us about some of your adventures. Yeah, man, it did this. Jim Henson and Frank Oz going bonzo with their bonkers variety hour, The Muppet Show. 
the highlight of the evening, the very wonderful, the very exciting, the very violent, and the financially very successful Dr. Teeth and the Electric Mayhem. Yeah, it is Dr. Teeth and it's time to bogey. Puppets and ventriloquists have had surprising longevity of uncomfortable relevance. There was the sex-positive octogenarian puppet Madam that went from off-Broadway to become a famous sitcom star. And of course, the horrifying political puppets of the British satire Spitting Image, who also made it big on an early MTV staple video, Land of Confusion by Genesis, which features a puppet of Phil Collins that is... Possibly the only thing that is as ugly as his own soul. Well, at least that puppet never gleefully watched a man drown. Still, it should be killed dead with a flaming crossbow. In the 90s, irony and nostalgia took hold, and there are plenty of satirical adult-themed puppet shows and movies. And of course, the horrible racist, sexist, and homophobic and inexplicably famous Jeff Dunham garbage comedy. I wish the puppet Phil Collins would drown that. And with every fad we delve into on the show, there is always a veritable cornucopia of albums that are produced as cash grabs on the trend and the celebrity that emerges from the trend. From the 50s until the 80s, puppets found their way onto records. Lots of records. Most were forgotten almost immediately. Many of the massive movies and television shows naturally had plenty of them. Charlie McCarthy, Howdy Doody, the... Croft Show, Sesame Street, The Muppets, etc. And we'll circle back to some of the more interesting of those. But it was instructional ventriloquism records that were really the first major vinyl trend to exploit puppets. One of the 20th century's most well-known ventriloquists was Jimmy Nelson, a.k.a. the Dean of American Ventriloquists. Along with his kindling pals Danny O'Day and Farfel, they brought the magic of lonely men conversing with dolls to the children with their own Saturday morning show. In addition to releasing allegedly entertaining albums, Nelson also made two instructional albums for would-be ventriloquists. On the cover of 1964's Instant Ventriloquism, it says, This system, used by Jimmy Nelson and other top ventriloquists, is revealed for the first time on this recording. Once you yourself have mastered it, you'll find you've opened the door to hours and hours of fun for the whole family. Taking those words to heart will lead you right into the fists of every bully on the playground and every father in every home. Danny? Yes? Farfel? Yes, Misty Nelson? This is the part of the record we call instant ventriloquism. What in the world is that? There's no such thing. Yes, there is, Farfel. We've designed a series of skits for the person who has just purchased a Farfel or Danny O'Day ventriloquist doll, or any other ventriloquist doll for that matter, and who would like to entertain his friends right away. Now, how can he do that, Nelson? 
Now, all he has to do, Danny, is pick up the script provided with this record, put the ventriloquist doll on his knee, put the record on the phonograph, and away he goes. Right, Farkle. Buffalo Bob Smith, the voice of Howdy Doody, released an album called Be a Ventriloquist, and, according to the cover, he teaches kids how to imitate foreign accents and sound like wild animals. In the 50s, I think those were one and the same. Because we can't find any clips for this, we're going to tell you a little story about the actor who played the first of the three Clarabelle the Clowns on the Howdy Doody show, Bob Keeshan, or you may know him as Captain Kangaroo. Behind the scenes, this clown would like to expose himself to his workers on a pretty regular basis as a lark. This passion only got worse as he gained power on his Captain Kangaroo show. According to stage manager Daniel Morgan, Cap'n Bob would take it upon himself to take out his weenie, put a pencil under it, and wave it at Lumpy, Bob's sidekick on the show. Lumpy grew sick of it one day and did the only retribution he thought he could. He peed on Bob's leg. Bob Keeshan was basically a less-endowed LBJ. No, that was no pussycat. I know that. You know that. But if the captain wants to think that a Bengal tiger is a pussycat, well, then who are we to argue with him? In 1969, English-born Canadian Jack Riley, whose clever stage name was Jack O'Reilly, put out his how-to album called You Can Be a Ventriloquist. The cover features one of the earliest Sgt. Pepper cover parodies with 50-some crazy-eyed wooden creation staring blankly at us and a big drum in the middle which reads Constable O'Rourke's Wooden Hearts Club Band. And the flowers in the front spell out the word wood. Riley had written one of the most well-respected books on the history of ventriloquism called I Can See Your Lips Moving, The History and Art of Ventriloquism. It should come as little surprise that this album spends most of the first side talking about the history of ventriloquism. Then, immediately following that, he spends 10 minutes talking about how people don't really, literally throw their voices. Whoa, 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 whoa. What? It's not even possible, he says. By the time he gets to actually teaching ventriloquism, I turn the record off. Riley eventually changed his name to Valentine Vox, and the, the story is that he did so because he was such a bad ventriloquist, he sort of needed a new start and a new stage identity. No wonder his album is nearly impossible to find. Another way ventriloquists used to get around these difficult letters is to slur them. For example, instead of saying please, they would say please. Well, what's wrong with that? Well, if you have to say something like please pass the butter, you will find it will come out like scrambled eggs. Gee, I'm feeling hungry. The British and American vents, as they were called, aren't the only people in the world that find talking to puppets worthwhile. Even non-English-speaking countries like Australia birth these pseudo-entertainers. Chris Kirby was just such an Australian, whose vent apex came about in the 60s, the golden age of shitty entertainment. Kirby says that, at five years old, he saw his first ventriloquist at a friend's birthday party, when the dummy slowly turned his head towards him and asked him what his name was. He screamed, peed his pants, and ran home. Once it was explained to him that the dummy wasn't alive, he thought it was pretty cool. 
Originally, he wanted to learn how to play guitar, but his father said, whoa, whoa, no, 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 no. Ventriloquism. That was A-OK. Kirby started getting work at a pretty early age and became a regular on a kid's show in the mid-60s. Kirby's dummy Gregory was so ugly and frightening looking that after a few shows, the station had to have a talk with him. They were getting too many calls from parents of scared kids. Kirby put Gregory out to the wood chipper and had a new, better, somehow less terrifying dummy built for him named Terry. Chris was so good, he was invited to America to be on the Ed Sullivan Show, and soon after moved to the States at the behest of a television writer and producer who wanted to make a sitcom starring Chris and Terry. So Chris packed up his stuff and his dummy. He left his wife behind and moved to the U.S. In Spain, ventriloquism thrived during the 60s, 70s, and 80s. It's no surprise if you've ever seen any Telemundo. They had stars like Herta Frankel, Jose Luis Moreno, Mary Carmen, and her clone, Mary Soul. All of them released albums, were featured on TV and radio, and became celebrities. But even before that, in the 30s in Spain, 78s were recorded by ventriloquists like Casimiro Hortas and his dummy El Manzano, as well as Francisco Sanz, whose recordings we were actually able to find, a couple of, at least, Sanz had a lot of dummies, with the most popular being Brother Volt, Pepito and Juanito, <laughs> The Ballerina, The Drunkard, The Mechanical Parrot, Cotufilo and his master, The Old <laughs> Geezer, The Negro, The Romantic Lady, The Sergeant, and The Legionnaire. Sounds like reject positions from the Kama Sutra. In Mexico, there were two well-known ventriloquists in the 70s, Oscar Zamora and his doll Don Chema, who released at least eight albums, Carlos and his pals Nito and Tatino, definitely released at least one album, probably more. That one album is especially known for its cover, which features one of the dolls, either Neto or Titino, throwing devil horns. In Argentina, Mr. Chasman and Charalita had over three decades of success, starting in the 60s. Mr. Chasman, whose real name was Ricardo Gamero, ran away from the home at the age of 13 to become a ventriloquist. And for you kids at home, it worked out. You should totally do that. Make a plan. Stick with it. In France, it was mainly Jacques Courteau and his pajama-clad duck doll, Homer, who creeped out kids and adults during the 50s and 60s with his records. Totally quacked me up. Vous a quitté l'accusé Oui, il a raison. Il faut que tout le monde se coupe les poils du nez. Et tous en cœur, la cœur de ciseaux à la main, nous irons... Milos Kirchner released over 30 albums in Czechoslovakia in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Many of the covers of his albums are either really disturbing or Czechoslovakian. Šmangode, přestaň člověče, vždyť se prolamuje strop, takhle do těch dveří mátit. Tímto já ne, to nad náma zabíjí štědrovečerního kapra. 
Austrian ventriloquist, musician, magician, and playwright Armanio Rustin, affectionately known as Herr Clown Habakuk to his fans, had a children's TV show and released albums in the 60s and 70s. His live puppet performances included such light, family-friendly fare as Breck's Three Penny Opera and Gogol's Government Inspector. So, we forgot to mention my favorite, which is uh, the Pierre Ferland record called Pour Tout le Monde by Les Ventriliers. The cover is a smoking, the smoking is Leo, Leo's the dummy, and he's huge, he's blown up, and he's smoking a cigarette, and he's about to drink a beer, but in the beer is, is Pierre the manipulator drinking his own straight man we probably mentioned we're going to put a ton of these covers up on the website far and away the genre that is most closely associated with puppet usage is christian children's records grasping on to the wholesome heels of the puppet fad amateur ventriloquist youth ministers grabbed their stuffed sidekicks and had their churches sponsor mostly private pressed albums of moralistic songs and skits about gardens burning bushes lion's dens, and coats of many colors. From the 1960s through the 1980s, an arcload of these records were produced and distributed as acceptable, Jesus-centric content for straight-laced Christian parents. The sheer cheeriness and polyannery of records was set in stark contrast to the creepiness of the puppet preachers and the overall condemnatory tone of some of the songs. The covers, which were so sadly authentic and so authentically sad, are often hilarious and sometimes straight-up concerning. Take a second to check out the cover for Uncle D Talks with Charlie and Sheila. It's like what influencer serial killers put on their vinyl Instagram pages. The saccharine music, bad ventriloquism, and manic and maniacal tellings of Bible stories, and grisly but cheery cover art, made these records find a new life in record store dollar bins in the 90s. Now, many of them are more expensive than comparably rare library records and private press classics. But who can resist the siren's call of Baby Lulu? No amount of money is too much for this. Unfortunately, because most collectors are primarily in it for the bizarro artwork, there are precious few recordings online of these records. And some of the most interesting relics only have one or two people who are brave enough to claim they own a copy. And they ain't sharing. Trust us, we we asked. Several times. Still, we are going to go through some of our favorites and add audio snippets when we could find them. There are a few that we haven't heard yet, but their descriptions make them worth mentioning, and... For the purest of heart, seeking them out. Without question, Marcy Tigner is the queen of Christian ventriloquists, and there's more competition for that title than you might imagine. Along with her dummy, Little Marcy, who was made in her exact image, Tigner has over 40 albums that have sold over 2 million copies. The image 
of an album cover with a B-52's beehive haired lady vapidly sitting with a pasted on smile and a matching puppet staring darkly out into the world is pretty much the standard image that most people conjure when thinking about these sorts of records. Tigner first tried to bring people to the Lord through the most holy of all brass instruments, the trombone. She released a trombone gospel record which, surprisingly, didn't resonate with the youth. She quickly reversed her tromboner stance. She had also been told that her voice was too squeaky and high-pitched to be a gospel singer. However, she realized her sound was perfect for impersonating a really annoying child. She used her unnaturally fetching voice on several children's Bible records, which were highly successful and led to nationwide tours. Eventually, a suggestion from the ventriloquist, talent-laden future Miss America, Vonda K. Van Dyke, encouraged her to learn ventriloquism and incorporate it into her act. Once proficient enough, which is to say she was a great ventriloquist for records and radio, she commissioned Little Marcy, a child-sized carbon copy of herself from the same puppet maker who made Charlie McCarthy. Sort of like um, Candace Bergen's half-sister. Edgar Bergen loved her more, too. She began to release albums at a lightning pace starting in the early 60s with all sorts of songs that featured parables, lessons, and good old-time religion like this banger, When Mr. Satan Knocks at My Heart's Door. When Mr. Satan knocks at my heart's door and says, may I come in? I say, no, no, for Jesus loves me so and took away my sin. My personal favorite is this strange synth country track, Gospel Express, which sounds like what would happen if Tammy Wynette and Mort Garson starred in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and went straight to hell. She also had an album called Little Marcy Sings Sabbath Songs. But if you're like me, you'll probably be disappointed with which Sabbath songs she's singing. Dio era, mostly. Eventually, the doll was so immensely popular that Big Marcy Tigner's name got dropped for the billing, and the act was just simply called Little Marcy. She would eventually have her own line of toys, books, and other merchandise, and would bring out thousands of kids to performances at churches and festivals. She would even have her own radio show. The Marcy's career would last into the 80s before they retired from the religious show business game. The records ascended into obscurity. In the 90s, junk shop collectors started picking up on the oddball Christian puppet records featuring a sappy-looking lady and her identically dressed doll. Notables like Jella Biafra started expressing love for these records, and they made perfect mixtape filler. Little Marcy had 
sort of a revival from goofy record collectors and started appearing on World's Weirdest Song compilations. At Little Marcy's figurative height, as many as five records are being issued a year under a variety of labels with lots of repackaging and re-records. So hardcore Marcy collectors had plenty of fodder to plow and pray through. The one record you want to keep your eye out for is the ultra-rare 1972 crossover, Little Marcy Visits Smokey Bear. The song quality is a bit more lush, and there are plenty of nightclub-esque duets with the ursine anti-arsonist. As a fun bonus, you'll get to hear Smokey chastise the girl dummy for a few of her own tromboners, like recklessly building a campfire or attempting to eat handfuls of poisonous wild red berries. What kind of idiot wooden doll would attempt to build a campfire? Let me introduce you to my friend, Smokey. You'll be glad you met him when you meet, Smokey. He'll do anything for you, he'll go anywhere, he will risk his life for you. Smokey Bear! In the wake of Little Marcy's success, there was a huge wave of lady ventriloquist imitators spreading the good word with dapper-dressed dummies in tote. Frida and Willie Joe, Gail and Ezra, Phyllis Barnard and Joey, Anne-Marie and Jackie, Vicky and Rocky, Polya and Lester, Molly and the Salt Shakers, and, of course, the legendary Geraldine and Ricky. According to the liner notes, God gave Geraldine the power of ventriloquism overnight, and she turned down a $100,000 job a year at Disneyland to evangelize with her creepy wax museum Elvis-looking man-boy doll to spread the message of Jesus Christ, our Savior. The Lord works in mysterious ways, and as we found with Satan during the last episode, God might also need a better HR department. We sat there and observed our little demonstration, and we looked over in the glass of water, and you know what that little worm was doing in the water? No, what was he doing? He was alive. Oh, he was alive. Right. Well, how about the worm over in the glass of liquor? He was dead. Oh, he was dead. Right. Well, now, Ricky... Doesn't that teach you a lesson? Right. If you drink a lot of liquor, you won't have worms. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. No, you didn't get the point. Uh-oh, I reckon I better go to Sunday school. <laughs> Miss Muriel Linton unexpectedly broke down barriers when she purchased a male dummy and had a doll shop do gender reconstruction on it to turn it into Candy the Talking Doll a poor man's version of Little Marcy. But in the back room, she was everybody's darling. I didn't think the churchy folks were so cool with gender fluidity, but good for them. But by far the most sensual of the lady ventriloquist boy doll tag teams was that of Eric and his manipulator, Beverly Massagee. Yes, manipulator is the actual term used on the record sleeve. Releasing a couple records in the late 70s, Pastor Pickin' and Amen, the cover of the latter features an uncomfortable photo of the dummy and his manipulator nuzzling each other in, let's call it an intimate fashion? Seriously, 
Beverly Massagy is no ordinary preacher's wife turned ventriloquist evangelical. No, 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 no. Beverly used to be a movie actress and a Playboy circuit entertainer. Talk about giving you a Woody. Oh, and she claims to be the babushka lady from the Kennedy assassination. If John Peel saw Jack Ruby get shot, anything is possible. We might need to confirm this with Gibby Haynes' dad. The music is the equivalent of nails down chalkboards, or sitting through the nylon curtain. But the track, Jesus Put a Yodel in My Soul, hits you like the blinding light hit Saul on the road to Damascus. It wasn't just the ladies who had all the Christian fun. There were plenty of male performers doing the Lord's manipulation as well, if not their own. Some practically exude Marlboro manliness and ruggedness in their faithfulness, like Mountain Man and Leroy. Dressed and built like Grizzly Adams, these frontiersmen and boy toy bring kids to the faith through hymnal lyrics sung in the most infectious of tubular meat tunes. Oh, why? I wish I were a Jesus Christ, Christ my Savior, that Jesus I would love to be. Cause if I were a Jesus Christ my Savior, then all the world would see is loving me. Oh, I wish I were a Jesus Christ my Savior. Dan Betzer and his pal Louie issued four custom label albums of Bible classics in the early 80s, featuring the pair in some fantastic matching garb as shepherds or as Lion's Den residents, or even at a low-stakes game of poker. On the records, Louis showed immense self-awareness, for a dummy, drenched in dramatic organ. Sometimes the classic Bible tales got pretty intense, like in the sacrificial reenactment of Abraham and Isaac. God said, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice Isaac. Your only son, Isaac. Oh, no! Oh, yes. Oh, no! Oh, yes, Louis. God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Can I change parts in this play? No, you have to keep the part. Well, Abraham was shaken up. He was frightened, and he said, Oh, God, I'll sacrifice anything. I'll give you my crops. I'll give you my animals. I'll give you my tents. But not my son, not my only son, Isaac. Do you know, Louis, that when Isaac was born, Abraham was an old man. How old was he? Well, he was very old. He was up in his 90s. On Medicare. And then there are the uncles. As mentioned earlier, Uncle D has the most unsettling record covers you can imagine. Just a normal guy in a Bill Cosby sweater in a church with a boy dummy, a girl dummy, and the biggest Bible I've ever seen resting on his lap, staring into our souls. And he's British which only adds to the creep factor, obviously. Bill Salisbury's Adventures of Uncle Cousin encourages kids to be cowboys for Jesus and firemen for Jesus. 
But Mr. Bill pretty quickly corrects Uncle Cousin that he should not be messing around with Castro the Cuban communist. Oh, no! That patriotism pales in comparison to Uncle Sam and his all-saved Muplet band. M-U-P-L-E-T. The L stands for legally different. Uncle Sam, who dresses like he's on a bender during the bicentennial, surrounds himself with a horde of familiar-looking, but legally different, faces like a frog with a top hat, a grover-looking creature, (laughs) and a blue monster who eats cookies. Cookies with scripture references instead of chocolate chips. Scriptures, by the way, taste like shit. The best track is called Blowin' the Whistle on Satan, where Uncle Sam has his mupplets blow a whistle whenever they hear the work of the devil from a list he's reading. Things like sickness, drugs, idol worship, murder, curse words, booze, the occult, homosexuality, and women wearing pants. The mupplets are a little like Edward Snowden dolls, what with all their whistle-blowing. I don't like drugs. Let's blow the whistle on drugs. How about stealing? I tell you what, the devil likes to try to put evil thoughts in people's minds. Let's blow the whistle on evil thoughts. How about idol worship? God says, only worship him, no other God. Let's blow the whistle on idol worship. Oh, here's a bad one. How about murder? Taking somebody else's life. Let's blow the whistle on murder. Yeah, and here's one that seems to be all over the country anymore. Homosexuality. Let's blow the whistle on homosexuality. Oh, here's something I hear every day almost. Curse words. Let's blow the whistle on curse words. And booze. And lying. And witchcraft. The most epic evangelical dummy has to be none other than Clyde Hyde a creation of the ventriloquist Reverend Al Lacey. Clyde is a bit of a card. He has three albums where he takes on different roles. The Adventures of Super Dummy, Secret Agent, and The Lone Dummy. Hi-yo, A fiery horse with the speed of light, a cloud of dust, and a hearty hi-yo... Sliver? Oh, come on now. Sliver? Just read the script, Cosmo. Somehow these sketches lead kids to accepting Jesus as their savior. As explained in the album notes, parents need not be worried. I quote, Clyde Hyde is never used except in connection with the preaching of the gospel. His sole purpose is to tenderize the hearts of his audience and make them ready to listen to God's word. Well, call me Flank Steak because I'm getting tenderized and manipulated by this adventurous dummy. And if that wasn't enough, he also has two comedy albums, Cutting Capers with Clyde and The Mean Little Kid, which are sort of like ecclesiastical insult records, like Don Rickles Let Loose in the Sanctuary. Here's Clyde ripping into the poor, bald Brother Gaddy. Now listen, Clyde, actually what, what Brother Gaddy has, he has a crew cut. A crew cut? Yes, Looks to me like the crew bailed out. <laughs> you know what? What? When Brother Gaddy goes to the barber shop. What about when he goes to the barber shop? They don't charge him for cutting his hair. They don't charge him for cutting his hair? No, they charge him for searching for it. <laughs>
Before becoming a mega televangelist, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker released a puppet album called Jimmy and Tammy and Their Friends. The friends in question are entities like Muffin the Talking Dog, Allie the Alligator, Zippy the Talking Mailbox, and Bingo the Ham Sandwich. You never really get the ensemble feel in the music, since there's usually only one voice, Tammy Faye singing like Shirley Temple being waterboarded. Jimmy hangs out with the puppets on side two to tell some classic Old Testament stories. But you know, with alligator and mailbox characters. Susie, would you stop ad living? He started off towards Nineveh without a backward glance. Not even gonna glance backward. And when he got to Nineveh, he preached all through the town. Well, I'm gonna preach it. In 40 days, you all will die. My God is coming down. You wonder why? Just look around. You'll see the things you do, and most of what you say and think is mean. I'm wicked, too. They hung their and then there's Jiggers. Jiggers is an unfortunately named ventriloquist doll that exists outside normal space and time, probably because of his proximity to the big guy upstairs. He apparates in front of groups of children and leads them down a dizzying mix of songs, skits, jokes, and duets with a dummy that he named Ann Slanders. Surely the kids back then really ate up the Ann Landers spoofs. Hi, gang. Well, look who's here. It's Debbie Ann and Ann Slanders. A few other great album covers to check out are Gary and Friends, Uncle Weldon and Happy Harry, and Harry and Terry, featuring a toothless hillbilly dummy that likes to bray like a real ass while his operator is singing mournful hymns. But it's Grace and Wilbur Thrash that really take the cake as far as Christian puppet covers go. Their album, Rapture, has some of the most unforgettable artwork. First, there are the puppets, an assortment of felt-covered hand puppets, upright ventriloquist dummies, and a couple of full-bodied costumed animals. A dog, and maybe a sheep, maybe an anteater. It looks like the world's worst furry convention. Then there are Wilbur and Grace, who clearly make their own clothes. Grace is sporting some sort of oversized floppy hood hat head covering, sort of Handmaid's Tale meets Ghost of Christmas Future. Wilbur is sporting a suit that matches Grace's hat with a pattern so loud it can be seen from Edgar Bergen's Cold Dead Heart. And then there are the bells. Cowbells, jingle bells, Swiss bells. Just sitting idly by, hoping that one day they might be melted down and escape this cruel fate. The record features a bunch of bell songs, surprise, surprise, on side A and some sort of bizarre radio play on side B in which a boy wakes up to find he is left behind after the rapture because he thought the Bible was just silly story stuff. (laughs) 
living in a happy house uh -huh. on contented street. Amen. Where the Mr. and the Mrs. Wear smiles and kisses and home is really sweet. Yes, amen. Where an unkind word is spelled. That's right. And we don't have one old grouch. Right. Oh, everybody's almost always happy at home. If you're looking for a hipper brand of Christian puppet, one who is more down with the whole Jesus People movement, might we suggest DJ the DJ. Broadcasting from www in Joppa, that's Worldwide Wacky Wonderful Radio, DJ the DJ looks like a gin-soaked Muppet version of Dr. Johnny Fever. The album, On the Air with DJ the DJ, has the frantic doll disc jockey taking call-ins, talking weather, performing skits, and even playing some songs. The best of which is Pay Dirt Special, which is a CB-styled truckin' country song where the trucker gives a big 10-4 to the great Smokey in the sky. A puppet-made Christian trucker country song is one Waffle House and Leonard Nimoy reference away from being the ultimate Highway Hi-Fi podcast song. Anyways, if anyone has a copy of this baby, let me know. We're desperate to hear it. And the one person who owns it isn't sharing. And what happens if you need to deliver the message pronto-like? Well, if you're Mary Lee Dawn, you strap your two inanimate besties, Butch and Susie, to the handlebars of your motorbike and tear ass towards those lost souls. The self-proclaimed country riding preacher is responsible for some of the best cover art of the scene. Eagle-eyed observers might even spot a highly modified certain golden protocol droid amongst the other toy evangelicals on her first album. The C is for Christ. And parents don't fret, Miss Marilee makes it crystal clear that her records are made of 100% virgin vinyl. Maybe the only thing creepier than Christian puppets is humans pretending to be Christian puppets. Baby Lulu is a blonde southern belle that sings in a gaga goo goo style. Instead of sporting a dummy, she is the doll. But she still has two dressed up poodles under her arms just for good measure. It's pretty insane stuff. Somehow she manages to channel the voices of Gilbert Gottfried, Bobcat Goldthwaite, and Emo Phillips simultaneously. It's like she's throwing her own voice. And it has no intention of coming back. Are you ready, Uncle Eddie? And he cute daddy. He's wearing a real pretty red shirt today. All right. Jesus loves me. This I know. Uncle Eddie, I tell you what, honey. You you just play the little white keys. And you just forget all your battles, little brackies, all right? And then there's little Marky, who rewrites the meaning of uncomfortable. Over the course of three records and a Christmas album, he totally obliterates the idea of music. From the background of slight church organ music comes the voice of a full-grown man preaching, singing, in the voice of a young boy. And that's before you realize he is singing songs about being fat, going to hell, his dad beating up his mom, seeing Jesus on the deathbed, 
being a candy shoplifter, doing drugs like PCP, and heroin, seeing grandma get killed in a car crash, and all sorts of other random unhinged gibberish. The crown jewel is Diary of an Unborn Child, which is exactly as horrifying as what you're imagining. October 2nd. Today, my life began. My parents do not know it yet. I am as small as the pollen of a flower, but it is I already. I will be a boy. I will have blonde hair and blue eyes. Nearly everything is settled already. October 19th. I have grown a little, but I am still too small to do anything by myself. My mother does everything for me, although she still does not know that she is carrying me under her heart. But I am a real person, just as a crumb of bread is still real bread. My mother exists, and I do too. We are going to have to put a link to the Little Marky performances, where you can actually see him as a grown man singing in his normal voice, and then he just breaks down into Little Marky. It is one of the weirdest things I've ever seen. Oh, and then there's former folk one-hit wonder Barry McGuire, who decided to plummet far past the eve of destruction, all the way to the morning after walk of shame when he chooses to dress as a life-size polka dot bear for his kid's Christian album, The Story of Creation. Yeah, it's unimaginably upsetting on many levels. I hear the little robin chirp as it goes about his work Calling you to come outside and play God knows when every sparrow falls And we'd be remiss if we didn't mention Ava Kathleen Beatty's God's Chosen Puppet, which is only notable for being one of the worst and most disturbing album covers. It's a very sullen-looking lady in a classic 80s, frilly, high-collared dress being strung up like a marionette with pink ribbon. I'm not sure anyone has actually heard the music. There may not even be any music. It's nightmarish enough as it is. The Christian puppetry movement is still marching strong. Sadly, they haven't embraced the vinyl record movement yet. But still, a cursory internet search will find you a bounty of weird Christian puppet shows. Just to give you a little taste, here's a song called Eat of My Body, where a hungry-looking grandpa puppet sings of the Last Supper while chomping down some cutlets and staring down a confused-looking lamb puppet. In Egypt, the Jews had been slaves many years. The Lord heard their crying, the Lord saw their tears. He brought them from bondage, but first made them eat a Passover meal. A lamb was their meat. a bottomless pit of horrible music, and Lord only knows what other vinyl puppet atrocities have yet to be uncovered from the storerooms of fellowship halls. 
But it wasn't just mainstream Christians that thought puppets would be an excellent way to bring sheep into the fold. The disgusting cult The Family International has several videos starring a platoon of cut-rate puppets called the Lovets to spread their insidiousness. The stories were based on the books of leader David Berg, so you know it's some mind-frying stuff. Not all Christians are on board with the ventriloquist train. Take, for example, the Ministry of Truth that explains black magic is at the root of ventriloquism. Yes, even so-called Christian ventriloquism. Many people who practice ventriloquism will tell you they did not learn this dark art from any book or even any other person. They'll tell you it just seemed they had a natural ability to do it. It's like speaking in tongues that you can't see moving. Mm -hmm. What they don't realize is they have spiritually received their ability under direction from evil spirits. What they believe to be their natural gift is really a generational reconnection and visitation from the dark spirits of witchcraft. The ministry also preaches against aliens, bear statues, cupid, leopard patterns, perfumed oil, wreaths of garland, women wearing pants, and Star Wars. You've been warned. Not to give any credence to the Ministry of Truth or any other anti-ventriloquist movements, but there is a pretty strong connection in that art form with the rise of spiritualism that we discussed in the last episode. Just to pull us out of that tailspin, or that tailspin's tailspin, Let's step back and talk about records that were produced after the success of television shows featuring puppets. Just like the Christian children's gospel stuff, there's a ton of them. Like 40 Sesame Street records in the 70s alone, with Sesame Street Fever being the most famous. favorite of these records is the Sesame Street Monsters record, which was mostly written by David Axelrod, and features this ode to us hairy folks. I am covered with fur, from my snoot to my spur, I'm a furry fella, fur, when you stroke it I purr, when you poke it I purr. Likewise, the Muppets were constantly issuing hot, felty wax, often with the man-Muppet himself and God's co-pilot, John Denver. It's not easy being green and Rainbow Connection were solid hits, but this trend goes all the way back to Howdy Doody releases in 1949. 
Sherry Lewis and Captain Kangaroo each had handfuls of chipper records with their inanimate friends. Eventually, the dolls and puppets decided to just do away entirely with their handlers and release the records themselves. Sometimes, they would pull together some great artists to rock out for them, like when the Thunderbirds, our go, grooved their marionette bodies to this tune, Shooting Star by Cliff Richard and the Shadows. I saw you in someone else's car You told me that he won't go too far That may be so But you let him know that I got friends So baby, listen to me Shooting star will shoot you and Mars will go to war The man in the moon will jump on you if you don't love me Long-hair Wishnik troll dolls who had several sing-along records like this song, Mommy, Can I Go Out and Kill Tonight? Or, really, Mommy, Where's My Wishnik? For a doll with clearly absent genitalia, they have a lot of balls to so blatantly rip off the chipmunks. A couple of mischievous hand puppets named Kenny and Corky also decided that chipmunk sound was ripe for the plucking and took it all the way to the bank with this demented Christmas testicle classic, Nuttin' for Christmas. Clearly, as long as there are crazed consumerist children, there will be shitty music packaged with their favorite stars to sell to their desperate parents. This dangerously fragile ecosystem is probably the only thing holding up the economy at the moment. For most, well, all of this turntable talk so far, we've been lambasting weirdos who prefer the company of dolls whose innards can easily be manipulated by hand. There are actual funny, and talented people who have used ventriloquism to incredible effect. Richard Stanfield was one of such... Richard Stanfield was one such comedian. As part of the Laugh Records roster, he released 12 albums between 1969 and 1980 as Richard and Willie. If you aren't familiar with Laugh Records, it was a comedy label that housed some of the funniest and dirtiest comedians of all time. Richard Pryor, Skill and Leroy... LaWanda Page, Red Fox, and George Carlin as just a start. The recordings had shitty sound, like it was a single microphone recording a live comedy set from someone's basement. For the most part, the recordings were live sets from comedy clubs, though many were also recorded in the studio. For the latter, an audience would be brought into the studio and the comedian would record two 20-minute sets with a short break in between. Even those sounded like crap, with the sound meter going through the roof at times, but... That didn't matter. The covers of these albums were filthy, and, 
Like porno mags, they were originally sold in brown paper bags. The albums were often some of the funniest albums ever recorded. Ventriloquist Richard Stanfield was absolutely one of these. Stanfield, a fan of Winchell and Bergen, bought his own doll, painted it black, and named him Willie. The dummy was described on the back cover of the album Snow White and the Black Knight as Stanfield's sharp-featured, afro-coiffed, quick-tongued, irreverent, three-foot-four-inch counterpart. Listening even now, the jokes hold up. They're far raunchier than anything in the mainstream then or now, and they couldn't even be made now. Listening to Willie insult the crowd in a way that would make Don Rickles blush, rant about racist politicians, racist cops, racist society, sadly, sounds contemporary. They also had the ability to clean up their act for tours with Roberta Flack, Nancy Wilson, and more. However, here's a clip of some of the blue material. But I ain't scared. I ain't scared of no suck. Nanny, some niggas scared to speak up. Last night, I was talking to the Ku Klux Klan, the White Citizen Council, Richard Nixon. I said, all oh, you motherfuckers. I said, this is bicentennial year. This shit gonna change. I said, you don't get a black man his freedom, I'll kick and cut every last one of you dudes. Ooh, you told those people that. What did you do after you got to telling them that? Hung up that damn telephone. <laughs> well, the other thing that we did find, which is, uh, we won't clip, <laughs> is in 1976 there was a puppet porno produced called <laughs> Let My Puppets Come. Uh, <laughs> and uh, if you're interested in that, you can go ahead and explore that on your own. That's some pretty weird stuff. We might put a link up. This final grouping of records we're calling simply the Weirdo Records. Many are ostensibly written for children, but in actuality are not appropriate for humans of any age. Ray Allen was an English TV personality from the 50s through the 80s that is dubbed the world's greatest ventriloquist, and is especially known for a routine when his dummy, Lord Charles, has his own dummy. It's like dummy fractals. But it was a surly titch, which sounds like a hybrid of Tiny Tim and Bon Scott, and obstinate duck quackers that really showcase some fine, peculiar puppetry. Here's the Lost Christmas classic, Santa Bring Me Ringo. Now we're all here, and the groups here are discovered. Uh, all the choir here? Yes, yes bitch. Oh, good. Where's the discovery? Uh-uh. Oh, quackers, not you, you daft duck. You're on the other side of the record, aren't you? Uh-uh. Well, go and get ready then. Uh-uh. Yeah, ta-ta. Where's Ria? Here, Titch. Right, now, I'll show you how this song goes. I'll start it off and you can join in. Right, now, here we go. <laughs> this is it, then. <coughs> Santa, please, Santa. I don't want a thing. No, just bring me, bring me, ring I want a holly as Paul Winchell spent a career chasing the popularity of Edgar Bergen like Donovan chasing Dylan. Still, he had a pretty solid career with a radio show and a television show. Winchell had two main dummies, Knucklehead Smith and Jerry Mahoney. His most famous record is called Chips of Wisdom, which is a bizarre concept album where Winchell takes Mahoney out to the woods for a series of life-enhancing father-son chats about character. For example... 
this track, Mary Smith, about how little Mary lost her parents to the flu. But she's still tappable for a poor homely girl. Say, Winch, you know who was in my class at school this year? Mary Smith. Mary Smith? Well, sure. You know her. Remember a couple of years ago there was a bad epidemic of the flu and she lost both her father and mother? Oh, oh yes, Jerry, I, I remember now. Little Mary has lived with the Johnsons ever since. Yeah, that's right. They adopted her. And she's a real nice girl, too. Oh, she's not a raving beauty or nothing, but she's always laughing and full of fun. Everybody likes her. Winchell did okay for himself after his puppet philosophy career, becoming an acupuncturist, a medical hypnotist, and helping to invent the artificial heart. Also something he may have stolen from Edgar Bergen. <laughs> there is no doubt that the artificial heart was first used to Pinocchio Jerry Mahoney to life. Probably wanted to take him back out to the woods. After the music halls proved fruitless, Liverpudlian comedian Arthur Askey reinvented himself as Sir Ken Dodd and started hanging out with a bunch of village green idiot marionettes called the Diddymen. The Diddymen had great names like Dickie Mint, Nigel Ponsonby Smallpiece, Weenie Wally, and Mick the Marmalizer. And they worked in the sticky-sounding Jam Buddy Mines. It was sort of like a drunken Irish fraggle rock. The Diddy Men had their own show and this amazing theme song. Stiff-upper-lipped British ventriloquist Roger DeCourcy won a nationally televised talent contest when he paired himself with a lovable, irresponsible cockney bear named Nookie. They released a single for Pie Records in 1979 that has a close-up of the cartoon version of Nookie staring into the emptiness of Our Souls. And the emptiness of said soul echoes with this. He asked me if I'd like to stay, he said he didn't care. That I didn't have a name, so he called me Nookie there. Nookie, Nookie, take a look around, you'll see Nookie everywhere. Nookie, Nookie, we all love a little Nookie there. Sort of the first new wave single, and according to Brian Eno, it's still sets a standard for experimentalism that modern pop music has yet to surpass. The cover art of Mr. Dressup's album is some sinister shit. Wearing overalls, bow tie, and a grin from the depths of Hades, Mr. Dressup is menacingly sawing wood planks in front of a couple terrified puppets, namely Casey the boy and Finnegan the dog. He looks like he's gleefully carving up Casey's family. There is also apparently a local television show, the music is pretty standard fair children's tunes that make you wish Mr. Dressup would saw off your ears. Wait, 
I have two strong hands, see them work, see them work. I have two strong hands, see them work for me. They will pound a nail, they will push the saw. I have two strong hands, they will work for me. Don was a fixture in Houston televisions in the 1960s. He struck gold when he hooked up with Seymour, the alien monkey sock puppet. The duo had three albums and several singles and pretty much cornered the South Texas sock puppet folk scene. Their version of Keep on the Sunny Side of Life is interspersed with bad jokes, which is surely the inspiration for Lou Reed's Take No Prisoners. Stay on the sunny side, always on the sunny side. Stay on the sunny side of life. Cause you feel no pain as we drive you insane If you'll stay on the sunny side of life Hey Don, I've got a riddle Okay Seymour, what's your riddle? What did the painter say to the wall? What did the painter say to the wall? I don't know, what did he say? One more crack like that and I'll plaster you Stay on the sunny side Give us new meaning to toe fucker get it because he's a sock puppet toe fucker the local tv puppet show icon with the greatest name is none other than shrimpenstein the shrimpenstein show was an la saturday morning b monster movie series from the late 60s the eponymous character was a wise ass miniature frankenstein's monster type guy who infuriates his mad scientist human friend dr von stick played by gene moss Moss was a veteran of the Halloween novelty scene who had already voiced a pretty great album called Dracula's Greatest Hits. Strippenstein show was created on the heels of the monster craze and was a cut above the rest of the cheesy horror shows for kids. They're among the first to play Marvel comic cartoons, which Dr. Von Stick often openly mocked, and the program was usually sponsored by Hormel Wieners, hawked by a different puppet, Wilford the Weenie Wolf. Ow! One year, they made a 45 for their fan club, which is now extremely collectible and a hell of a lot of fun. I wonder if that fan still has his. What a sight in the laboratory late one night. There began the story, lightning flashed, and something this, a poor old crazy scientist, had dropped a bag of jelly beans into his Frankenstein machine, and Shrimpenstein was created in just half the time that it takes to make a Frankenstein, and so you see, he's half the size of you and me, and though he'll try, he can't be mean, he's just a little walking jelly bean. Velvel was a Yiddish puppet who, 
along with his handler Ricky Lane, became popular after Nat King Cole strong-armed Ed Sullivan to feature them on his show. The bit was unforgettable. And they ended up doing Sullivan another 47 times. The duo got so popular that they started hanging out with the Rat Pack, where one drunken evening Velvel and Sammy Davis Jr. were said to temporarily exchange eyeballs. Lane and Velvel also made a record called Fairy Tales for Adults You Wouldn't Believe. The fairy tales are adult in that they are full of dumb jokes, not adult like the puppet porn we mentioned earlier, much to the disappointment of Brian Ferry. Bill Hart quips on the back of his album, Let's Go Ape with Bill Hart and his pal Harry, that he was born at a young age. That's the quality of joke that you can expect from this private press classic. He also brags that he was a blackface minstrel, a vaudeville performer, a stone-cold killer in World War I, and a French Apache dance team member, and a knife thrower, all before he found his true calling in ventriloquism, specifically his superb dialects. I can only imagine the sensitivity and restraint that Bill and Harry show, given the history of their cultural mindfulness. Two other things to note from the sleeve. Number one, Bill loves to play children's hospitals on tours. Six kids are the best audience. They can't leave. And number two, that the album is subtitled The Intellectual Idiots, which is nearly half right. Gary Hunter and Mrs. Tweed were the masters of dummy lounge music that did their finest work, and only work, aboard Carnival cruise ships. <laughs> They're responsible for countless patrons heaving themselves overboard into the darkest depths of the ocean just to escape that contagious croon. Send me a postcard, drop me a line, I'm sending you on a trip, indicate precisely where you'd like to go. Country Bumpkin Dummy was a popular personality for ventriloquism acts there for a minute. Randy O'Dandy and Susan were a rhinestoned pair featuring a former beauty queen and her hornball shit-kicking brother dummy who talks about how great it was to be the only male allowed into the girls' dormitory. They made appearances on Hee Haw and had a couple of strange singles that have been entirely wiped from the internet. Tommy, Doc Scott was one of the last true minstrel performers who started in the 30s with traveling medicine shows, along with writing and singing a huge amount of old-timey and bluegrass songs. Ramblin' Tommy was also known to perform with a talking mannequin that he made out of an oil can called Luke McLuke. Luke is featured prominently on the cover of the album Tommy Scott's original Georgia Peanut Band. And there are even clips of the duo slaying the audience at the Grand Old Opry. I over and I hipped the little baby calf out of the mud, and the mother cow wished to thank me. Why'd she do? Well, the mother cow, she wished to thank me, so she came over and she licked my hand with gratitude. Done what? 
she licked my hand with gratitude. No, she didn't. Yes, she did. No, she didn't. Yes, she No, she didn't. All right, smart Ellie, why'd that cow lick my hand? She thought she was her other cave. Now, well. Gary Bradford is a legend amongst collectors of weird records. Gary Bradford was born with a condition called focomelia, meaning that he has no arms, amongst other abnormalities. But he didn't let that slow him down. In fact, he would have embraced it if, well, usually just belting out bad gospel music, he decided that he also needed to get in with some Christian dummy play, despite pretty suspect voice-throwing skills. Certainly helps to be in the recording studio. He and Danny the Wonder Boy break out some cracks about the difference between pastors and deacons on his record. I'm not handicapped, just inconvenienced. Here's a snippet of the skit and title track. Gary, how are you doing today? Oh, real good, Danny. What's going on? Well, Gary, I learned something new this week. You did? Well, what did you learn? Well, I learned the difference between a, a deacon and a pastor. The difference between a deacon and a pastor? Well, what's the difference? Well, a pastor's saved to be good and a deacon's good for nothing. Oh, well, isn't it good to be here in a recording studio and getting ready to record my song? Yes, Gary, and I want to say something. Well, hurry up. You know, we're on tape. Well, we're all handicapped one way or the other, and Gary's is just a little more visual. You can see his, and even I have a handicap. You have a handicap, Danny? Well, what is your handicap? Well, I can't talk without you. Oh, okay. Well, I'll talk to you later, Danny. Handicap just inconvenience. I've got a great big voice instead of arms. Now God gave my hands, and that's okay, cause I can sure handle the consequence. He might put me in a church with thousands and thousands. They're in a little town with just two. At the dawn of the hip-hop movement, Sugar Hill Records was known for being courageous in the music they released. They may have never been braver than when they issued the 1981 single, Check It Out, with Wayne and Charlie the Rapping Dummy. Charlie, for being a dummy, was quite the social advocate, spitting hot fire about access to food stamps and Medicaid. And Way Garland still spends a lot of time educating and entertaining disenfranchised New York City youth. David Liebhardt is a star of the art-brute style of puppetry. Starting as a Hollywood Bowl busker along with his trusty companion, a filthy hand puppet named Doug the Dog, the Christian scientist made a name for himself with bellowed-out crazed gospel pop singing and bad ventriloquism. So bad, in fact, that his method of throwing his voice was pretty much him talking normal while hiding his mouth from the audience with uh, his hand or a piece of paper. He claims many things. 
He was an early comedic partner of Robin Williams. He was abducted by aliens. He was raped by a polar bear. Jim Henson left him a puppet collection. He was featured in episodes of The Golden Girls and Wings. And that he had conversations with ghosts of reptiles that had died due to his negligence. His L.A., the Junior Christian Teaching Bible Lesson Program, is one of the most famously bonkers public access shows, with Mr. Hart using puppets, biblical codes, alien conspiracy, psychedelic effects, majestic synth music, and fringy guest stars to deliver some sort of message. Is unprofound a word? He found some fame as a favorite on the Adult Swim Tim and Eric show and would eventually record CDs and tour. Here's a clip from the show with an alien singing about Jesus, naturally. In God's presence is peace and joy and power, a life divine of God. Protect us every hour. Angels take the flight and protect us day and night. And we are divinely protected wherever we go. In a similar out there vein is the one and only Tim Jones, who recorded disco synth music to accompany his philosophical ramblings on universal creation, death, love, life, and energy. But his funky doctrines needed an additional cheerleader to find a wider audience. Enter T.J. Hustler, a streetwise dummy in the vein of Iceberg Slim, who would wax poetic on metaphysics while Preacher Man laid down the beats. Somewhat of an engineer, Jones hardwired a Hammond B3 organ to play both Moog synth and normal organ sounds. Here is a bit of a mind trip for you called Feel it. Preacher Man put out an extremely rare private press record and a couple CDR releases, but luckily has had some reissues lately. More on that in just a moment. No matter how much we may want the creepy reign of ventriloquism and puppetry to end, it shows no signs of slowing down. If anything, it grows in its insidious power. We've already mentioned Jeff Dunham and his acolyte Terry Fader becoming very popular on the wave of lowest possible denominator. There's brutally stupid puppets doing adult shows and movies like Crank Yankers, Avenue Q, Happy Time Murder, and Wonder Shows. And then the huge amount of horror movies that draw upon the natural repulsion of dummies and puppets to bring cheap chills and thrills to their audiences. The Great Gabbo, Dead of Night, Magic, Puppet Master, Dead Silence, Devil Dolls, Chucky, Annabelle, and on and on. But there have been more insightful and satirical puppeteers, too. Robert Smigel is an expert-level roaster as Triumph the Insult Comic Dog, 
which has caused him to get kicked out of several national conventions and a few Westminster dog shows. Or, if you like your Muppets mopey, then try Fragile Rock. The emo puppet band might be right up your weepy alley. Somewhere between an art troupe and a comedy act, the Austin group really leans into it with onstage in-between song therapy sessions and a band motto of Stay Felt. Here's the song, I Am Sad and So Am I. As you know, it doesn't really matter anyway. There is a dark cloud over me. Standing in the clover, waiting for my brother. I am sad and so am I. An emo puppet band not weirdly specific enough for you? How about a Jewish rock band manned by life-sized puppets? Bubba Mises has taken Israel by storm with their Hasidic, tune-incorporating, slick power ballad style of hard rock sung in Yiddish. And then there's the amazing Miss Pussycat, whose elaborate puppet shows are always accompanying her husband, Mr. Quintron's, live shows. Her anthropomorphic creations live in detailed worlds where they have their own bands and create their own records, like this Flossie and the Unicorns record that we used to play to clear out hippie customers at the CD shop where we worked. You got an DJ Cardboard, a veterinarian in the magical forest. Last night I got a great idea. I'm going to teach the animals to play guitar. Going to have jam sessions with the tigers. Going to have jam sessions with the tigers. Elephants can walk out too, yeah. Some animals can start bands. Miss Pussycat and Mr. Quintron are amazing and worth their very own turntable talk at some point. But for now, check out their music and their spectacular puppet shows. There will always be weirdos doing things with puppets. Puppetry is as infinite as singing. It's hard to believe the solemn religious ceremonies featuring movable idols from thousands of years ago would eventually lead to this 16-piece, eight-men, eight-dummy, Hungarian ventrilo choir. But it did... Yesterday, all my troubles seem so far away. Now it looks as though they're here to stay. Oh, I believe in yesterday. Suddenly, I'm not half the man I used to be. There's a shadow hanging over me. All you can do is shake your head and enjoy the madness. Despite the ongoing cultural presence, puppetry still seems to struggle to find its place in society. The unsettling nature of objects that are symbols of life while still being so obviously lifeless things both makes puppetry compelling and repelling. 
and this dichotomy is perfect for the fringiest parts of society. To deal in an art that is both accepted while somewhat maligned and wholesome while somewhat troubling. Puppets are manifestations of our communities. Storytelling devices for performances that convey the historic, cultural, and moralistic aspects of the people. In light of this and the wild examples of the art form that we've bore witness to in this show, one has to be just slightly worried about civilization. Or maybe on the contrary, we can take comfort in the fact that in this chaos, it is pretty unlikely that there is anyone out there pulling the strings. Well, I think you're going to talk about this later. You have at least one of the albums we've talked about, right? Oh yeah, I've got a, I've got, I've got a little Marcy record. <laughs> it's pretty much unlistenable, but I have it. It's greatest hits, right? It's a compilation of the greatest of four of her albums, four of the five hundred or whatever. And I just picked it up when I was buying a bunch of weird, you know, gospel records at a thrift store for a quarter or something. And I also have the Preacher Man record, which we're going to hear from in a second. And that's pretty great. I want to say thanks to a couple of people who helped with some ideas and point us in the direction of a few things. Micah from the Music of Mind Control. Um, he's a, an amazing resource for this sort of stuff. And he pointed us in the direction of some pretty funny stuff. So appreciate him. You should definitely listen to his uh, radio program. His, uh, it's online um, Tuesday nights. Just look it up, Micah and the Music of Mind Control. And also Mike Dixon from uh, uh, People in a Position to Know Record Labels, and he's the uh, lathe cut master, lathe cut artist. He it was pointed me in the direction of a few records he had, which were great too. So we appreciate them and uh, their expertise in the field of puppet records. So nice to have them as a resource. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right, are you ready for some songs? Let's do it. Right, I'm going to go ahead and play my first song. Like I said, I was going to play that little Marcy, <laughs> but I I just decided that you all, if you've made it this far, that you, you deserve a break. So for my first song, it is Preacher Man, and the song is called The Age of Individualism.
that was Preacher Man um, and the Age of Individualism. And that was a his story. We've talked about it a little bit, but it's, it's a little bit convoluted. But basically, Tim Jones was making music, and then he was sort of afraid to go on stage, or he wanted a way to kind of feel more comfortable on stage. So he, he brought on TJ Hustler, um, who was the puppet. And so TJ Hustler released one record called The Age of Individualism. It didn't have the song, though. And so that was the private press record, and that was like 79. And then he basically covered himself. So he started doing Preacher Man playing TJ Hustler's greatest hits. So it was himself as a puppet writing the songs, but it was himself as the puppet master recording cover versions of his puppet songs, which he wrote, if that makes sense. And Luakabop, David Byrne's label, put out a compilation of those weird covering of oneself CDRs, and it was called Universal Philosophy Preacher Man Plays T.J. Hustler's Greatest Hits. And that was released just a couple years ago, 2018. And that's where this song comes from. So we've talked about him quite a bit in this episode and in the um, Micah and Candace talk about him in the Night Bus episode. He was one of the Pink Motel people. So just a great guy. It's a really fun record. It's got those great disco-y synth grooves. And then just has a man acting as a puppet, acting as a man. It's great. My first song for this episode is by Mahmoud Ahmed, and it is called Tizita. So Tis 
Mahmoud Ahmed with Tazita. That was originally from a 1975 album called Era Mela Mela, which is also the name of his most well-known song. And I have the 2013 reissue, which was put out on the Heavenly Sweetness label. And it's with his Ibex band. This album that I have is um, 
part of the Ethiopique series. If you're not familiar, Ethiopique is a series of CDs and vinyl that collect Ethiopian music from the 70s. A lot of rock, funk, soul, jazz, traditional Ethiopian music, just folk, um, all kinds of really great stuff. And Mahmoud Ahmed actually has four volumes of that dedicated to just him. Wow. And this is one of them. He's amazing. He's got one of the best voices that I've ever heard. Um, hopefully you heard some of that there. On, on many of his other songs, he is just amazing. And he is generally known for a style of music called Tizita, uh, which is a way, it's a style that romanticizes the past through very slow and soulful music. A lot of it's a little bit jazzier somehow when he does it, but um, that's kind of what it's supposed to be. And he's got a lot of different songs called Tizita. Some of them are multiple versions of the same song. Some of them are different songs. Some are much jazzier and faster. This is the one that I like the best of the ones I've heard. And until the last 20 years or so, Ahmed was relatively obscure because a lot of the younger Ethiopian musicians really kind of wrongly tied him to that older sound. Since then, he's been rediscovered and celebrated worldwide. He's won some really big awards even in uh in the uk that song again it's mahmoud ahmed with tazita it's a very infectious slow groove song that I, I love it i can't get it out of my head and i don't think i want to that's a good song my second song is by rd berman and asha bosla and it's called dunia mind logan co Oh, 
That was R.D. Berman and Asha Bosla with Dunia Mind Logan Co. I have on a compilation from 2017 on World Music Network, and the compilation is called Bollywood, the Psychedelic Years. The song itself, the original song, was for a 1972 Bollywood film called Apna Desh. And... I don't have a whole lot of information. I looked at the what the movie was about. wasn't as fun as, as I had hoped it would be, but there is some kind of cool information about Berman and Bosla. So from the 60s to the 90s, 
R.D. Berman composed scores for 331 movies and is credited with introducing psychedelic rock into the Bollywood sound. 331 movies. That's crazy. What's even more impressive is that the singer, Asha Bosla, sang in over 1,000 movies. She also released her own albums. In 2011, she was put into the Guinness Book of World Records for being the most recorded artist in music history. Kind of cool. Yeah. I got the Bollywood album a couple months ago, and that's the first track on it, and I just fell in love with it. It's really weird and catchy at the same time. It's something a little lascivious about it with the grunting, but it's a it's a fun song, I think. So hopefully everybody liked it. No puppets in it, though. No, I went pretty far away from our theme with my two picks. <laughs> Mercifully, mercifully. Yes. As did I with my last song. This last song is called You and Me by Penny and the Quarters. quarters they are a uh, kind of a lost soul band and they got sort of famous though i didn't know this when this song was used in a movie called blue valentine in 2010 
I'd heard it on a compilation or something at some point. So probably after the movie came out, but it's a great story. So basically these teenagers were invited to audition in a kind of a local Columbus, Ohio recording studio that would eventually come out as the pre-label P-R-I-X by a guy named Clem Price. And so they recorded three songs. This was one of them. And it was um, a sister and her three brothers. Uh, And they were just, they called themselves Penny and the Quarters. The song was basically recorded and then nothing was done with it. It was put in a box. They think it was recorded sometime between 1970 and 1975. And the owner of the studio just kind of put it in storage. Then that guy, Clem Price, died and all his collection of tapes and acetates were purchased at an estate sale and people listened to them and they were fantastic. And so they got him to Numero, who put out a compilation on their Eccentric Soul series. And this one's called Eccentric Soul, the pre-label that came out in 2007. And as that happened, this song kind of, because it's such a beautiful, great song, it just kind of caught fire and then Ryan Gosling heard it and he told the director of the movie about it and then they put it in the movie and it just kind of became its own living thing. It's just a fantastic song, one of those great guitar-driven soul songs and um, Numero had to work really hard to find the people who recorded it, but they did. Uh, It was a lady named Nanny Penny Sharp and they found her. She was 62 years old and working at a post office and singing in her church And she told them it was her brothers and they were able to get them back some of the royalties, which is, which is fantastic since the song got big and was used in the movie. So kind of a cool story, beautiful song has nothing to do with puppets, but I figured we'd all could use a break from that. All right. Are you ready to finish up the trivia? Oh yeah. I got some work to do. Can we play the songs one more time? Yeah. We'll run through this one more time. I want you to tell me the artist song title, and the theme. And remember, the theme has more to do with the song than with the artist. And there might be a little bit, a little touch of the theme of the show in here, sort of. Okay. Okay. And so we'll play it again right now. Here we go. Track one. If they push that button. If they push that button. It's gonna blast you so high. Track two. You you And there's always some turtle snapping. Track three. Sleeping on futons and cots, the king size, green machines, the green five, the scene pies, let the thing between my eyes and the lies, life ills, then I put it down tight grill, I'm tight grill with the phony track four. Track five. Six. 
that was it. All six clips. What do you think? All right. I think the first song was Nuclear War by Yola Tango. It's that Sun Rock cover. Good job. Man, I never would have gotten that. That's a great song. Oh, I love that song. They just reissued the original Sun Ra record. And then the second song is Smog. And I think it's No Dancing is the name of the song. It is. Yep. Which is off Knock Knock, which is one of my favorite, personal favorite records. Yep. Very good. The third uh, song, at first I thought it might be Jay-Z Hard Knock Life with that beat. But then I heard the um, the rapping, and it's clearly not Jay-Z. I don't know. I really don't know. It is Jay-Z with Hard Knock Life. Oh, is it really? Yep. You had it. Oh, okay. So I did have it. Yep. I didn't think that was him rapping, but... Okay, cool. The fourth song is John Cale. I have no idea what the song is, though. It's called There Was a Savior. The fifth song was Pastor T.L. Barrett with Like a Ship. Yep. All right. And the last song, I have no clue. <laughs> the last song is Tina Turner mm-hmm. with We Don't Need Another Hero. You couldn't have put the voice in? No way. I thought this whole thing, you have been doing a number on me for the last like 10 shows on trivia. I've been taking it easy on you. You're not getting <laughs> Tina Turner's voice. Okay, so let me think about these songs. Nuclear War, No Dancing, Like a Ship, Hard Knock Life. What were the other two? There was a Savior. Savior. We don't need another hero. Savior, Hero, Ship, Dancing, Hard Knock War. More hints? Yes. It has nothing to do with the titles of the songs, though that could really come up with there could be something there do they all mention strings no (laughs) i'm so tired (laughs) give me another hint um little marky could have appeared on these they all have kids singing in it they do yep oh damn i've already used that one yep you didn't get it this time at me yep got it right back at you with different songs nuclear warhead the kids Kind of going, um, repeating everything they said. Yeah, so call, yeah. call and response. Smog had a children's choir. Jay-Z had Hard Knock Life from Annie. <laughs> uh, John Cale had a children's choir. Pastor T.L. Barrett, you could hear kids singing. Tina Turner, of course, had kids in it. That's it. Oh, I just did that one. Yeah. I think I even used Smog, and I might... I don't know you if did I the, You O'Bear. did the other one, though. You did um, hit the... Ground running? Ground running. Yeah, I love that yeah. song. I love that whole album. Good one. Good one. I'm well, you know. Sorry. He was all right. He was all right. I didn't mean to repeat one that you had done so recently, but I thought it would sort of fit with this one. It does kind of fit. <laughs> you should just put a little Marky on there. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to speed up the singing so, uh-huh. that it's, so they all sounded like little Marky, uh, but... I was too lazy. You should have sped up the adults and slowed down the kids. That would have really thrown me off. (laughs) Do we have anybody to thank this week? We do. Yeah, I've been chatting a lot with the Performance Anxiety Podcast, part of the Pantheon Podcast Network, and listening to their shows. I've been running through a lot of their shows, his shows. It's a great interview show, music podcast, 
they had the first one I listened to was with the Flat Five, which is a band that I really like with Kelly Hogan and Nora O'Connor in it. And that was just a great interview. He also has interviews with uh, Jarbo from the Swans, Michael Giro from the Swans. And maybe the best one that you should go out and listen to right away is with Mark Lanigan, who's wow. I, am, I am certainly a huge fan of. And he tells a lot yeah. of great stories about Screaming Trees, Queens of the Stone Age, things like that. Absolutely worth checking out. Again, it's performance anxiety. It's part of that Pantheon podcast network. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Super nice guy. Yeah. And thanks to Pantheon for um, being our host and uh, our network that supports us and helps uh, funnel new listeners to us. And and if you enjoy our show, um, <laughs> maybe not this episode in particular, but like, you know, normally <laughs> if you enjoy this episode, you probably should just get yourself checked. Um, but yeah, but there's other great music podcasts and anything you could possibly imagine. Uh, interviews like uh, Performance Anxiety and other kind of more informational essay shows, kind of like us, and some kind of more reviewy type shows. All, all sorts of great stuff. So check out some other uh, shows on Pantheon. And we have social media, don't we? Yes, we do. We are on Twitter and Instagram, and our handle on those is Highway High Fi Pod. We have a Facebook page. You can find that pretty easily. You can email us at podcast at gmail.com. We have Spotify playlists. We're not keeping up on those as we should be, but that kind of goes hand in hand with how we work. Um, <laughs> Twitter also has not been. Whew, boy, I just, this social media stuff, I think I'm old. Where we have social media and we do infrequently update it. We're just not very social. Well, we, I've just spent two weeks listening to mostly music by puppets. And I don't think most people want to talk about that with me. That's why I, I don't. have you. Yeah, yeah. I'm done. My wife sure doesn't. I'll tell you that much. I bet. <laughs> Reach out. <laughs> send us an email or send us a message on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. We, we love to hear from people and it's you know, kind of keeps us going to know that people are out there listening. We, we appreciate everybody who does listen. Uh, as always, please, if you have a little bit of extra scratch, spend some on some worthy people, go buy a record, go buy a few records, go do a, uh, watch an online show, a lot of performances. I, uh, we donated some money to Slim Cessna recently. He's been doing shows like one man shows from his place in the mountains of Colorado and they're fantastic. And so, there's lots of great people doing great shows, so it's record store day coming out. If it's safe and you can get to a place safely or preferably buy online, maybe you can get some cool record store day stuff. We appreciate you, and you know, we appreciate anybody who stuck with us and listened to what will surely be two hours worth of ventriloquism records. We should have just done the whole show in dummy voice. <laughs> Wait, you weren't doing that? Uh-oh. Oh, <laughs> oh, snap. <laughs> All right. We appreciate you and we will see you next time. <laughs>